Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 26th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week, Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie talks about some of the highlights of the December issue, and researcher Boro Dropulik talks about using viruses to fight disease. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, John Rennie. We talked in the library at Scientific American. December's issue is out. Uh, people have to look at the bat evolution article. That is a beauty. Even if they don't read it, just look at the pictures. What amazing photographs. They really are. They, the, the, the photographer did a wonderful job of, of capturing what's so, so beautiful and fascinating, uh, about bats. And, uh, the, the, the rest of the article really looks at the evolutionary question of, of what makes bats the fascinating animals that they are. Um, bats are a way more successful group of mammals than than most people would ever realize. What does the article say? 20% of all mammalian species are bats. I believe they are the most successful mammalian group for that reason. I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing. And they are found basically everywhere. Um, the, the two major evolutionary adaptations that, that make bats what they are and, of course, go to, uh, to making them so successful seem to be, obviously, flight, um, because they're the, the truly flying mammals. And, uh, and echolocation, um, really distinctive. And, and one question that has, uh, that has puzzled biologists for a really long time, uh, was, was which came first in that sense? Were these flying mammals that learned to echolocate or were these animals that were using sound to locate things in the dark and flight started to come along after that? Um, starting to look like they're getting some answers that, uh, flight came first um but there it's it's a fascinating question there are a lot of mysteries about uh how how bats arose the bat anatomy just the the images of the the bat skeleton i mean i've seen bats my whole life mm-hmm. i live near the bronx zoo you have flying foxes there that are just flying around free but i never appreciated the the bones that are analogous to our hand and finger bones are immense compared to the body size right well they because that's what the, i mean basically when when a uh when a bat flies it's doing the equivalent of of waving its hands in the air right just the hands not yes. really the, the well it's the arm bones as well but that you gotta you just have to see it i mean this is this is i'm, I'm violating radio rules here <laughs> you, you gotta see this because the, the it's as if your index finger was the length of your entire body yeah. I mean, it's, it's astonishing the kind of, the kind of adaptations you see in bats. And, uh, man, some of the close-ups are their little creepy faces. <laughs> so we, we also have a terrific article on magic. Yes. And it's not just kind of, uh, superficially popped into the magazine. It actually bridges some interesting issues in neuroscience. Right. There was actually a, uh, a, a scientific paper that appeared uh, not too long ago in the uh, journal Nature and also some presentations at uh, some, some scientific meetings talking about the subject of the relation between magic and the brain. Now, we're not talking about Harry Potter, hocus pocus kind of magic, but we're, we're talking, talking about real magic. Conjuring man. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, a sleight of hand and all the rest. Uh, uh, obviously, 
as as magicians have have always said, as they've always known, the, the key to magic is very commonly misdirection. It's basically a matter of creating certain kinds of illusions in the the mind's eye of the audience, uh, and they accomplish this by often, in effect, getting people to pay attention to one thing when something really important is going on someplace else. In effect, they they are getting our brains to fool us um, and and enlisting sort of uh, our, you know our our own inattention but uh this has become interesting because what it means is that in a lot of ways the magicians have been intuitively using for a very very long time certain kinds of of truths about how it is that our brains pay attention to things that neuroscientists are only just starting to figure out now. And conversely, a lot of the neuroscientists are starting to look at how magicians pull off certain tricks as a way of, of trying to figure out more about what's, what's actually going on inside our brains, uh, that, that we fall for, uh, for this kind of misdirection. And there's some things that magicians do that actually take advantage of the way our brains process information so that it's not a question of you didn't pay attention to something. You are not capable of seeing certain things that they do. That's right. I mean, you know, in effect, it's, it's the sort of thing of finding out that, that in effect, you can only pay attention to one thing at once. So even if when you are monitoring a scene, if you think you're watching what's, uh, you know, what the magician's left hand is doing as it's moving the, the little cups and balls around, if the magician suddenly does something that genuinely draws, uh, your, your, your attention, uh, with the, the other hand, um, then, and that's the moment when the magician can manage to do something. You won't see it then, even though you think you're paying attention. This is, this is what one of the things that they discovered is that in many cases, it's, it's the point of the attention of, of what you're paying attention to, not necessarily your gaze that's, that's shifting. Yeah. Even if you constantly fix your eyes on one thing, you may still actually be paying attention to something kind of out of the corner of your eye. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, you would think that every man out there would be very aware of a woman's dress being ripped off on stage, and yet you are incapable of actually appreciating it as it's happening. And that can be the key to certain kinds of tricks that the, the magicians will uh, will then play. I mean, but as they they point out, I mean, there are there are a number of of experiments, for example, that have have demonstrated how astonishingly bad we are at paying attention to things that go on in scenes. There's a there's a famous one that involves uh, getting people to try to count a basketball being passed among a bunch of players. <laughs> I've, I've done that one. I think we all have. And 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 and. You can't believe it, but the fact is that this this goes on, and they get somebody to walk through the scene in a gorilla suit. Right across the court as these guys are passing the ball to each other. Squarely through the middle of the field, and most people are never, ever aware of this. Because they're they're fixating on a particular challenge, what, counting how many times the ball is being passed, and they literally don't even see it. They're not even aware that something interesting happened Amazing. that way. So this is the kind of thing that uh, magicians have been doing for a long time. And this is, a, this is a fun article because it was written by a couple of neuroscientists, but they had a lot of assistance from, uh, from very well-known uh, magicians like, uh, like the amazing Randy and uh, uh, Penn and Teller. Uh, so it's, it's a fun article. People should definitely take that one in. Penn and Teller, uh, Grace Hour cover, in fact. Indeed they a do. A little portion of the cover. Yes. Most of the cover talks about this uh, this very fascinating moon of Saturn. That's right. That would be Enceladus, uh, which is uh, uh, you know 
it's a, it's a tiny little ice ball of a moon. You wouldn't expect very much of it to be interesting, but it turns out to be one of the most fascinating moons in the outer solar system. Because even though it's very, very cold, it turns out that it's, it's geologically, seismically active. Um, the, the Cassini probe in, in, in inspecting it has noticed that there are these geysers of steam and, and ice that are shooting out of part of the, uh, the South Pole. Now this is very, very strange because normally you need uh, something big the size of a planet for there to be enough internal heat, uh, for, for there to be something like geysers. Um, and, uh, as, as this article is explaining, it appears that, that the, some of the, the heat, uh, that, that Enceladus is manifesting is generated by tidal forces pulling on it. That, that Enceladus may actually, uh, be an ice, ice covered body that has a, a significant liquid ocean over uh, just just under that ice and uh, that there may be a lot of liquid that liquid may be sloshing around in a way and that may be sort of part of what's creating the sort of friction that generates that internal heat uh, in response to tidal forces it may also still be warm from some kind of impact that happened who knows how long ago and uh, and some of that is still uh, leaching out but it's all really interesting because uh because there seems to be this internal heat and there seems to be water and these uh, geysers of of uh, water crystals and so forth coming out of the, the South Pole that they seem to contain a lot of organic compounds. Uh, Enceladus has basically joined that short list of places uh, like uh, Mars and uh, Titan uh, in our solar system that are now major, major points uh, for looking for uh, extraterrestrial life. It's as if Saturn has reached out a, uh, a, a creepy little hand and is squishing it like a little squishy ball until it heats up. Right, right. That's that's one way of sort of thinking of what the, the tidal forces are, are actually doing to it. So that's on the cover. There's a there's another really interesting article about developing. We call it driving toward crashless cars. Mm-hmm. If if not crashless, at least ways to really lower the frequency of crashes. And it's interesting, there's some connection to the magic article because they're trying to incorporate technology that fools you into being a safer driver. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. I mean, the problem is a lot of, a lot of accidents are caused by the fact that we don't pay attention when we drive. And so one of the keys to sometimes improving our safety as drivers might actually be to, to, for the cars to be communicating things to us to make sure we're paying attention to the right things. Uh, this becomes increasingly important because, quite frankly, the, the population is, is getting older and older all the time. The older drivers, unfortunately, is a point of fact that, that they often uh, are not paying as close attention as, as younger drivers are. So you want to definitely make sure that, uh, that they can be kept safe. Um, there are more and more gadgets that people are playing with in absolutely. the car while they should be driving. That's right. And I hope you don't, yeah. don't stop listening to this podcast until you come to a red light. <laughs> if then. Um, but, uh, but, but, uh, so, so, Automakers are increasingly working on trying to build in some kinds of systems that will make our cars safer and that uh, in some cases, as you say, they will help us alert us, the drivers, to things we should be paying attention to. For example, are we drifting out of a lane of traffic? Something that corrects it, makes us aware of it, so we 
can get back into the right lane. Um, but in some other cases, uh, giving a kind of intelligence to the cars to make sure that when something is going wrong, if a collision is imminent and maybe we're not responding to it as well as we could be, that the car can actually intervene. Um, you know, th- things like anti-lock brakes are sort of the first generation uh, uh, version of this that, that everybody's familiar with. So that if I stomp down fast on uh, the, the brakes of my car, it makes sure I don't go off into a skid. Well, there are more and more sophisticated forms of this that are coming along. All of this starts to point us toward a day when, you know, cars may increasingly be uh, not just uh, automobiles, but autonomous. And uh, they may be they may be able to do most of the driving themselves. Um, but obviously, that can't happen until such time as, as the cars are able to watch out for our safety. Coincidentally, my car is in the shop right now getting a new anti-lock brake sensor installed. <laughs> you may want to have some of those other big upgrades in the process. If, if it's possible, I'll uh, I'll check with the folks at Budget Muffler. <laughs> uh, we've got this article on peptide nucleic acid. We've got an article that uh, gives you some, some tips on how to avoid being a phishing victim, P-H-I-S-H, online, and the other usual collection of columns and short features, news articles, and brain teasers, and fun letters from our readers that you can find in every issue of Scientific American. Every single issue. Isn't it amazing? The December issue of Scientific American. On sale now. The December issue, including the Bat article with all those spectacular images, is available on our website. We also have a three-part video featuring the article's author, Nancy Simmons, of the American Museum of Natural History. Look for the Field Guide to Bats in the Biology section of Siam.com. Researcher Boro Dropulik recently stopped by our offices. He's the founder and chief scientific officer of a company called Lentigen. We spoke in the Siam Library. They're using an interesting idea to try to attack disease. Well, we're using a, a virus... And what we're doing is, is we're gutting that virus and putting in medicines to help treat our serious diseases. These things are called vectors. They're things that deliver genes into cells. And I kind of like to think of vectors as like trucks, where you have a truck that you deliver something into a cell and then you have a payload. And in this case, a payload is a gene that can be, can be therapeutic for particular diseases. People are probably used to hearing about viruses as vaccines, but perhaps not as the actual treatment. And evolution has really done a lot of this work for us because over certainly hundreds of millions, probably billions of years, viruses have uh, achieved this ability to very efficiently get inside your cells and insert their genetic material. Yes, different viruses for, for different types of animals. There are plant viruses. There are also human viruses, and we're using a human virus to very efficiently deliver therapeutic genes into human cells. And talk about some of the specifics. What what are some of the various ideas about what conditions can be attacked in this way with with the viral vector? Uh, all sorts of serious diseases, for example, cancers, infectious diseases like AIDS, um, autoimmune diseases, genetic diseases, all, all diseases for which there are no good solution, present solutions. 
I know one of the things that that you're working on first is a way to increase the amount of time you have when dealing with the flu virus to really figure out what the construction of your your vectors payload should be. Because right, why don't you talk about what what the problem with the current vaccine system is and how this kind of a system might give you some more time to make it more specific when you attack the thing. Yes, so we have a delivery system that can very efficiently deliver genes into cells. And in this case, they're the influenza genes. And we can make a vaccine using this system very rapidly compared to conventional methods because of the efficiency of the delivery. So in contrast to making the vaccines over months, we can condense it um, to a much shorter time frame so that we can actually start production, um, what we hope will start production of our vaccine later in the year to get an exact strain match for each uh, influenza uh, Be- virus. Because currently it's it's an educated guess as to what the genetic makeup of the, the next year's flu is going to be. Yeah. Because manufacturers have to um, start production so early, they have to make a quote-unquote educated guess of what that strain will be, rather than it being the exact strain. So in many cases, the, the strain is wrong. And so by having a rapid manufacturing platform, we can delay the time in which we start so that we can ensure to have a genetic match before we start manufacturing. Another of the the conditions you're working on is graft versus host disease when somebody has a transplant. Mm-hmm. Uh, if things go wrong, the body's immune system attacks the uh, the transplanted tissue, mm-hmm. and it's devastating. Mm-hmm. And so how would uh, this kind of viral vector system work in that situation? Right. So allergenic transplantation is a, a known way to... Um, cure many leukemias, many forms of cancer. Um, unfortunately, there comes a, a price that those cells from the donor that are transplanted into the recipient, that's an allo, that's what's called an allo transplant, can sometimes attack the host, leading to what is called graft versus host disease. We have a genetic switch that what, what we do is, is we place this genetic switch into the vector, and the vector very efficiently delivers that genetic switch into the cells that you then transplant into the individual. If the individual should get graft versus host disease, we can turn on that switch and then turn off the graft versus host disease effect. Right, so this switch comes along for the ride, and yeah. if, if you don't need it, you don't have to activate it. That's right. Let's also talk about stem cell protection. Now, this is not stem cell therapy. We're talking about protecting your own stem cells, and, and this situation comes up in a certain kind of cancer that you're working on. Right. So this is uh, to address a brain cancer called glioblastoma. Now, glioblastoma can normally be successfully treated with a drug called temozolomide. But temozolomide also destroys your stem cells, which are the cells that produce your blood. These are blood stem cells. Um, so what we're doing, we're using the lentiviral vector to insert a protective gene called MGMT into the stem cells so that when patients then receive the drug temozolomide, their stem cells don't die, but they survive because they now have that protective gene. Right. So in this case, it's a therapy to protect the body from the other therapy. Yeah. It's like protecting um, the, the, the cells from a side effect of an existing drug that is known to be effective. All right, let's, uh, let's turn over all the cards and reveal to the listeners the secret here that I, I didn't want you to say it up front because 
in in a court of law it might be considered prejudicial. So we're gonna we're gonna instruct the the, the uh, jury to disregard until now. But this is the really interesting thing I think to a lot of people. The lentivirus, lentivirus is a family of mm-hmm. viruses. Mm-hmm. The particular virus in question here mm-hmm. that you're using as your vector to transport all these genes that are hopefully going to do good things. Tell us what that is. Well, it's derived from the HIV virus. And what we've done is, is we've muted the HIV virus by taking all out all the disease elements and putting in a therapeutic payload. And the reason why we use it is, is that this virus has for, as you said, for millions of years has evolved to get into human cells so efficiently. That's why it's such an insidious disease. But then when you take that virus and then mute it, break it up into pieces, and then instead insert a therapeutic payload, it becomes the most efficient way of stably delivering genes into human cells known. Really interesting idea. You might even be able to use this altered HIV against HIV. Absolutely. We're going to be initiating some programs um, where we will use an anti-HIV payload in our HIV vector to inhibit replication of the virus. Speaking of HIV, December 1st is World AIDS Day, devoted to recognizing the ongoing necessity of addressing AIDS and HIV. Check out the in-depth report on HIV and AIDS the week of December 1st at Siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, there's ten times as much bacterial diversity in the human bowel than had been previously thought. Story two, chemists have created a sugar molecule with a much higher melting point than sucrose, which could give cooks new recipe options. Story three, exercise can lower a woman's risk of cancer, but only when combined with a good night's sleep. And story four, speaking of exercise, a study finds that people who keep gratitude journals, simply writing down what they're thankful for, wound up exercising significantly more than a grouchy group. Time's up. Story four is true. People who just kept a gratitude journal for ten weeks, writing down things as simple as, I'm grateful I woke up today, wound up working out 90 minutes more per week than another group who are assigned to write down things that were ticking them off. Be thankful you can hear more about this study on the November 24th episode of our Psychology and Neuroscience podcast, 60 Second Psych. Story three is true. New research finds that a woman's risk of cancer drops if she exercises and can get a good night's sleep. Lack of sleep appears to undermine the anti-cancer benefits of exercise. That's the finding of work done at the National Cancer Institute and presented at the recent International Conference on Frontiers in Cancer Prevention Research. The exact mechanism isn't clear, but it's believed that exercise alters hormone levels and immune function that in turn change cancer risk, and sleep modulates the effects of the physical activity. And story one is true. There is ten times as much bacterial diversity in our bowels than we thought. That's the finding of David Relman at Stanford, reported in a recent issue of the journal Public Library of Science Biology. He found over 5,600 strains or species of bacteria by looking at variations in DNA sequences. Ira Fladow has a nice interview with Relman about this work on the most recent episode of Science Friday, which is available as a podcast. And you can hear an interview we did with Relman about previous work concerning us and our microbes on the May 2nd, 2007 episode of Science Talk, archived on our podcast page, siam.com slash podcast. 
All of which means that story two about a sugar molecule with a high melting point is totally bogus. But what is true is that astronomers have found sugar in space. Well, they found an organic sugar molecule in a particular region of the galaxy where habitable planets might exist. The discovery was published November 25th on the website AstroPH. The researchers found the molecule glycoaldehyde in a region about 26,000 light years from us. Glycoaldehyde has been spotted in space before, but only in the galactic center where conditions for good planets are bad. The simple sugar could be really important because it can react with propanol to form ribose, which is a key ingredient in RNA, which is probably what you need to cook up life. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news. And check out our in-depth report on the science of Thanksgiving. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yeah.